Well, we are now in our fifth installment of this series on the Christian mind. And when we talk about the mind, you cannot go very far in your discussion without raising the issue of truth. And our focus this evening is on the issue of truth, and our endeavor is to answer the question, what is truth? How would you answer that? If someone at work or perhaps a neighbor, someone in your family asks you the question, perhaps a son or a daughter, perhaps your wife would ask you the question, what is truth? How would you answer that question? For many, the topic is esoteric. It is something that belongs in the hallways of the academy or in some kind of debate setting among philosophers. It doesn't really belong around the kitchen table. At least that's what many think, and that could be no further from the truth. That The issue of the truth and answering this question, what is truth, is a matter of immense practical significance. How you answer this question, what is truth, has immediate consequences for your life. Immediate consequences for how you view your life, your circumstances today, and immediate Uh, direct consequences for tomorrow and ultimate consequences for eternity. What is truth? Now that question is a question that has been raised by many philosophers, but uniquely raised by Pilate. You remember that occasion in John's gospel. It's interesting that John's gospel contains many references to truth. In fact, when you look at John's writings in the New Testament, we see that about half of the instances of the word truth occur in John's writings. He's, he has a, a, an interest in this particular topic. And we find a, a reference to truth in a very fascinating interchange that took place in Jesus' trial in John chapter 18. Let me begin reading in verse 33, John 18, verse 33. Therefore, Pilate entered again into the praetorium, And summoned Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Are you saying this on your own initiative, or did others tell you about me? Pilate answered, I am not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priests delivered you to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Therefore Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? Pilate's question to Jesus wasn't a sincere probing inquiry. He was not there to learn from Jesus. In fact, as we go on to read, even though Pilate comes out and makes a half-baked attempt to say that Jesus is of no matter and not guilty, he 
nonetheless has Jesus scourged and then eventually approves of Jesus' crucifixion. No, Pilate was not at all interested in learning from Jesus about truth. His question was sarcastic. His question was cynical. And the irony here is, is thick. You see, standing right before Pilate was the very embodiment of truth itself. In the person of Jesus, and rather than recognizing Jesus for who he is, Pilate cynically asks the question as if to write off the entire significance of the person and the mission that was in front of him. What is truth? And that question from Pilate really summarizes the cynical attitude of mankind toward truth, even though it is a question that was asked in antiquity, it is a question that continues to be asked today with the same kind of sarcasm. What is truth? Of what consequence is truth? And the history of humanity is really a history of that cynical question. The rejection of truth, the rejection of God's revelation, and ultimately the rejection of the very embodiment of truth, Jesus Christ himself. That certainly describes our day today. What is truth? Some 36 years ago, in the end of the 20th century, a book was published by Alan Bloom as he sought to summarize or or he sought to, to come up with a Uh, an assessment of the current state of the modern public university in the West, in the United States in particular. And he wrote a book that was called The Closing of the American Mind, subtitled How Higher Education Has Failed Democracy and Impoverished the Souls of Today's Students. And the very first paragraph of that book, he writes these words. There is one thing a professor can be absolutely certain of. Almost every student entering the university believes or says he believes that truth is relative. If this belief is put to the test, one can count on the student's reaction. They will be uncomprehending. End quote. Bloom goes on to talk much about the state of the university and how education has, has conditioned students to think that truth is relative. In fact, in many ways, if you go back to the start of the public education experiment in the United States, it all was based upon conditioning young children to have a radically different view than their parents, to condition them to have a different view of reality. And that certainly continues on to this day. And Bloom wrote those words some 36 years ago. And that has only intensified, that state has only intensified so much so that if you want to look for the place that is most disconnected from reality today, just look to the university. If you want to look to the place that is spouting out some of the worst atrocities, both in thinking and in deed, you look to the universities. Cesspools of sin, cesspools of falsehood, 
And those are considered to be the places of higher learning. And that obviously has an impact. Through those universities come millions of students every year. And that leads to an intensifying effect upon the culture itself. If you fast forward to 2020, Ligonier did a a study, a survey, calling it the, the state of theology. And in 2020, they they posed the question to a significant number of of, uh, respondents, and the question was this, or it was really a statement, and this is what they said. The statement is this, religious belief is a matter of personal opinion. It is not about objective truth. Do you agree with that, or do you disagree? 54% of respondents agreed, some of them strenuously, that religious belief indeed is a matter of personal preference. It is not about objective truth. In other words, more than half of the population, if you extrapolate from this survey, more than half the population in the United States, and that's probably very generous, more than half the population believes that religion is all just a matter of personal preference and it is not about reality Only 34% disagreed. And perhaps this rejection of reality, this rejection of objective truth, is no better illustrated, no more vividly demonstrated today than what the federal government is doing with respect to the sexes. Just last week, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services released a statement related to the promotion of a Dr. Levin who is sworn in as the first, quote, female four-star admiral in the history of the U.S. Public Health Service Commission Corps, a unified service of more than 6,000 health, science, and engineering professionals. Now, this doctor is a biological male. That's the truth. That's reality. And not only has this individual sought to deceive himself and others, but he has convinced the entire apparatus of the federal government and has enlisted the federal government to promote that lie. Dr. Levin is not a female. He is a male. But that that issue over the sexes is but one very vivid demonstration of the heart of the problem. What is truth? That statement released by the government smacks in Pilate's cynicism. What is truth? And sadly, many Christians themselves are struggling with this question and are influenced by the, the influence, the power of things like the federal government and society, the universities, the media. So much so that many Christians today would believe the lie. Or at least say that it's not a big deal. One writer put it this way. One may say without exaggeration that failure 
to distinguish clearly between the Christian conception of truth and the conception of truth popularly cherished in the secular mind has been one of the most unfortunate neglects of our age, end quote. It's probably a very pleasant way of stating the sad reality. So what is truth? How do we define it? Well, in order to do that, let's look first at the secular mind. How is truth defined by our culture? It's important to understand this so that we can set it in contradistinction to the true definition of truth and so that we can also recognize the assumptions and presuppositions of our culture's perspective on truth. Now, it's important to note that when we talk about the culture, we talk about the universities, we talk about what's going on in the federal government, local governments, we talk about what is going on in the public education system and the world at large, we must understand this. It's not that they have abandoned or denied a concept of truth. No, they still very much use the word truth and claim truth. In fact, you just look at the media you have major media outlets using the word truth in their own mottos. Like, for example, CNN saying, moving truth forward. Or the New York Times saying that the truth is essential. Or you have the, the, the springing up of all these fact-checking organizations like PolitiFact having its truthometer. So it's not that the whole idea of truth is rejected. It's not that they refuse to use the word. Not at all. Instead, our culture has come up with their own definition, its own definition of truth. It still wants to use the power that comes with truth, but it has supplied its very own definition. And in our culture, the definition of truth is... is akin to or determined by the worldview of secular humanism. We need to understand a little bit about what secular humanism is in order to understand how it seeks to challenge and attack the biblical understanding of truth. Take that word secularism, for example. How do we define secularism? We could define it this way. Secularism is the approach to truth which asserts that the natural world is the extent of what can be perceived as reality. The natural world is is all there is that we can perceive as reality. Wasn't it Carl Sagan who said the cosmos is all that is, was, and ever will be? That's the mindset that anything that we put under the umbrella of reality can only be part of the natural world. That's secularism. Moreover, secularism contends that the supernatural realm, if it exists, and secularism doesn't necessarily deny the existence of the supernatural. Instead, secularism simply says, if the supernatural exists... If the divine exists, if God exists, it's not part of our natural world and thus it is beyond our reality and is beyond the scope of truth. 
You can't make truth statements, the secularist would say, that have anything to do with God or the supernatural. It's impossible. All we have is the natural world, and truth and reality have to do with the natural world. You have the sacred. The sacred, yes, that can exist. That's the realm of faith. It's the realm of myth. It's the realm of superstition. And you are welcome to dabble in those things, but don't call it truth. Truth is the material world. Consequently, secularism defines reality in a way that is unaccountable to any higher supernatural authority. In other words, as a secularist defines truth, there is no accountability to God. There is no accountability that can rise above the natural world. Whatever accountability there is for truth statements exists within the natural world. That's the secularist position. Moreover, it combines with what we can call humanism, And humanism is the idea that man is the measure of all things. Secularism combines with humanism to fill the void of this this accountability. Where then do we find accountability for truth statements? It's not anything higher. It's not anything transcendent. So where can we have some kind of authority? And humanism says, well, man will be the authority. And so secular humanism ascribes the authority for determining reality and truth to man himself. And that completes the entire process where now truth is entirely subjective. Truth is completely in the hands of man. It is completely divorced from God. It is completely in the mind of the one who perceives reality and And so man now has become the arbiter of truth. That is modern secularism, and that describes what permeates our world, our culture today, secular humanism. Again, Blay Myers, in summarizing this even a couple of decades ago, said this, quote, Modern secular thought ignores the reality beyond this world. It treats the world as the thing. Secularism is, by its very nature, rooted in this world, accounting it the only sure basis of knowledge, the only reliable source of meaning and value. Secularism puts its trust in this life and makes earthly happiness and well-being its primary concern. Let's stop there for a moment. The last two years and the obsession with COVID, we must understand, has been permeated by a secularist worldview, where earthly happiness and well-being is considered to be the primary concern. He goes on and he says this, its most basic presupposition implicit in all its judgments is that this which we experience directly with the senses constitutes the heart and totality of things. This world, all that is. And so truth is entirely subjective. Truth is what I feel. Truth is what I ascribe to things that I like or things that work. 
Error is what I, I ascribe to things that don't work or things that I don't like. It's all relative. This can be illustrated very simply even by looking at the, 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 uh, the motto of Harvard University. And if you know a little bit about the history of Harvard University, it was intended originally or, or, or de- developed originally for the training of Christian ministers. And so its motto was this, truth for Christ and church in the, in the very early years. But today, if you would look at the motto, it's just truth. All reference to the supernatural has been negated, has been removed, omitted from its motto. Therefore, according to the culture, truth has these qualities. Truth is relative, not absolute. Truth is subjective, determined by the perceiver, determined by you or by me. It's it's not objective. It doesn't exist apart from me. Truth is evolving. It's always changing. It's never constant. It's never unchanging. Truth is private. It's a private matter. It is not transcendent. Truth is anthropocentric, man-centered, not theocentric. Truth is made. It's not found. Truth is socially constructed. Truth is a matter of preference. Truth is prevailing popular opinion. Truth is never certain. Truth happens to an idea. Truth is what is useful and preferable. In light of this, earthly well-being becomes the sumum bonum, the greatest good of life. And it's why, especially at universities, you have the need for these safe places. Because the greatest evil today is to feel offended. The greatest evil today is somehow in this material world to feel pain. And so everything in life with this kind of secular mindset becomes the protection of my feelings, both emotional and physical. Perhaps this comes to its ultimate irony when secular humanists will defend this idea. They will defend their rejection of absolutes by making an absolute statement. And they will say, the only absolute truth is that there are no absolutes. Now, what is this? This is nothing less than the suppression of true truth. It illustrates what we read in Romans chapter 1, verse 18 and following, where Paul describes the mindset, this antipathy to to truth, true truth, in the first century. As he describes it, he writes these words, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world is invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, 
They did not honor him as God or give him thanks. But they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Ultimately, what we see in the secular mindset, secular humanism, is a rejection of the sovereignty, of the omniscience, of the very essence of the Creator. That's how our world approaches truth. That's how our culture approaches truth. But how is truth defined by God's Word? Now, let's look at how we are to define God's Word on the basis of biblical teaching. How do we define God's Word? How do we answer that question, what is truth? As Christian men, how are you to answer this question? What is truth? Well, let me give you a definition. It is this. Truth is that which corresponds to reality as determined by God. That is the biblical response to the question, what is truth? Truth is that which corresponds to reality as determined by God. Truth is made up of some kind of verbal statement. Truth is about words. And truth is that which corresponds to reality as determined by God. Now let's pull that apart a little bit and look at the three important nuances here. First of all, we see the verb corresponds. Corresponds means to be in conformity to or in agreement with, to match, to be equivalent. So it means that whatever verbal statement we make, truth, is in agreement with reality. That's the first nuance. The second nuance is this, reality. What is reality? We would say reality is the state of things as they actually exist. Reality is the state of things as they actually exist, whether we do or not. And then thirdly, the most important nuance in this statement is the word God. You see, the issue is, There can be agreement with the first half of that statement. Truth is that which corresponds to reality. If you would just say that to most people on the street, they may even agree with you. Yes, truth is that which corresponds to reality. But the question is, who gets to determine reality? Who determines what is real? Who determines the state of things as they actually exist? Now, of course, the secularist would say, well, I do. Or the majority does. But this definition says it is defined, it is determined by one. And that is God, the creator, the ultimate judge. The single ultimate authority who is able to define reality because of his unrestricted sovereignty and his absolute knowledge. So we could look at it this way. There is something called reality. The state of things as they exist. You are part of this reality. There are circumstances in your life that are part of this reality. Relationships, that's all part of this reality. But then there is something we call truth. 
Truth is the description of this reality, put in words. And for truth to be truth, it, it must correspond. It must be in agreement with. It must accurately describe. Now the issue, the crux of the matter is this. God is the one who determines this. He is the one who determines both the reality and the accuracy of the truth statement. He stands above it all. He is transcendent. He has determined reality. He has the power and the authority and the wisdom and the right to do that. And he has determined truth because he is the God who reveals. He is the God who speaks and who acts. And therefore, our part in this is that we exist under all of this. Not above it. We don't play a role in defining it. We simply must receive it. And that is so very, very important for us to understand. To recognize this reality. That I don't determine reality. I must accept it. I don't determine truth. I don't create truth. Truth has been revealed. Truth has been declared. Truth has been given. And it is my role to receive and submit to that truth. God is the arbiter of truth. Now let me give you several testimonies of scripture that, that support and, defo- that, and, and determine this definition. That, that truth is that which corresponds to reality as determined by God. Let me give you several testimonies from scripture that support that assertion. Number one, God is the arbiter of reality and truth by virtue of his transcendent existence. He exists above all. He is transcendent. Deuteronomy chapter 4 verse 35 and verse 39 read this way. To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord... That's Yahweh, that you might know that Yahweh, he is God. There is no other besides him. Know therefore today and take it to your heart that Yahweh, he is God in heaven above and on earth below. There is no other. There's no competition here. It's not that God vies for this right There simply is no other. He exists in a category completely separate in his transcendent existence. Or look at Isaiah 44 verse 6. Thus says Yahweh, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord Yahweh of hosts. I am the first and I am the last and there is no God beside me. See, God is transcendent in his existence. He is real. He indeed exists. He is not a figment of the imagination. He's not an illusion. He is the only true God, as Jesus says in John 17, verse 3. And the difference between God and everything else, between God, I should say, and even All other proposed gods is that God is the real deal and the other gods are all counterfeits. That is one of the reasons 
Why God alone is the determiner of truth. Secondly, the second testimony of Scripture is this. God is the arbiter of reality and truth by virtue of his infinite knowledge. Not only does he exist transcendently above all, not subject or dependent upon anything, but secondly, he alone possesses infinite and absolute knowledge. Understand this. His knowledge is exhaustive instantaneously. God never learns. He never grows in his knowledge. He always just knows, and he is always known. From eternity to eternity, he is always known. Isaiah chapter 40, verses 13 to 14, read this. Who has directed the spirit of the Lord? Or as his counselor has informed him, with whom did he consult And who gave him understanding? And who taught him the path of justice? And taught him knowledge? And informed him of the way of understanding? That is a rhetorical question. The answer is very simple. No one. No one has taught him. No circumstance has informed him. No event has instructed him. He is always known. He has infinite knowledge. Or Hebrews chapter 4 verse 13. In the context they're speaking of the word of the Lord. But then moves to make this assertion. There is no creature hidden from his sight. But all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. God because of his infinite knowledge is always true. He never learns. He always just knows. And what he knows exactly corresponds to the way things really are. Wayne Grudem states it this way. To say that God knows all things and that his knowledge is perfect is to say that he is never mistaken in his perception or understanding of the world. All that he knows and thinks is true and is a correct understanding of the nature of reality. End quote. Now understand, even just on a simple basis, how radically different this is from us. You see, whenever we are in our own, think about our own existence, it's like we are in a bubble. And we can't see the end from the beginning, the top from the bottom. We're in the midst of it, and all we see are just a few elements that immediately surround us. That's it. We can't see beyond And even if we were infallible in that knowledge of what was immediately around us, there would still be a big problem. We don't understand the big picture. We don't see the end from the beginning, the top from the bottom. And so how can we be a determiner of reality? How do we know what we're in? Think of your own circumstance. And think about Romans 8.28. God works all things together for the good of those who love him. Well, in the middle of the circumstance, we don't even know what we're, what's going on. But God is the one who is on the outside and he sees above. He sees the end from the beginning. His knowledge is intricate of everything that is involved in that bubble. And that alone means that he is able to determine what reality is. A third testimony is this. God is the arbiter of reality and truth by virtue of his sovereign determination. By virtue of his sovereign determination, the determination of God refers to that quality of God's character that causes him always to act according to his 
predetermined plan. Each of his works is executed exactly according to his decision, which he has made independent of anything outside of himself. So if you want to ask, who is able to determine reality? There can be no one else except this. He is sovereign. And he is impeccably so. And he has revealed himself as the one who does determine the end from the beginning. Psalm 35 verse 6 says this, Whatever the Lord pleases, he does, in heaven and in earth, in the seas and in all the deeps. Psalm 139 verse 16, Your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book were written all the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. That's God's sovereign determination. Or Revelation chapter 4 verse 11, where heaven erupts in praise to the Lord God. And we read these words, Worthy are you, O Lord our God, for you created all things, and because of your will, they existed and were created. So if you want to know who has the right to determine reality, it can be no one else than who possesses this quality. Another quality or another testimony of Scripture is this. God is the arbiter of reality and truth by virtue of his revelatory nature. God is a God who, by nature, loves to reveal himself. In fact, all his activities reveal who he is. We read that in Romans chapter 1, verse 18 to 20. God has made creation clear with respect to its testimony of him. It is a clear revelation. There's no doubt about it. God is a revelatory God, and therefore it testifies to his status as the arbiter of truth and reality. Psalm 111, verses 7 to 8 the works of his hands are truth. The works of his hands are truth. Speaking of God's revelatory acts in history. The works of his hands are truth and justice. All his precepts are true. They are upheld forever and ever. They are performed in truth and uprightness. Psalm 119 verse 160 testifying to the nature of God's special revelation, his verbal revelation. The psalmist says this, the sum of your word, the sum of your verbal revelation, the sum of it is truth. Take one word and define God's word and it is this, truth. It is truth, and every one of your righteous ordinances is everlasting. 1 Samuel 15, verse 29, contrasts God with man. Now understand, secular humanism seeks to make man the arbiter of truth, but notice how Scripture defines man. Who is man? Man is a liar. 1 Samuel 15, verse 29, also the glory of Israel will not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man that he should change his mind. Another testimony is this, God is the arbiter of reality and truth by virtue of his very essence. He is truth. John 1 verse 14, precious text, defines Jesus, the 
interpretation of God. Chapter 1, verse 18 goes on to say this, No one has ever seen God at any time, but the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has exegeted him. He has made him known. So how has Jesus made God known? Well, John 1, verse 14 says this, The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. God's very essence is truth. John 14, verse 6, Jesus said to his disciples, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And in Revelation 19, verse 11, when we read of the return of Jesus Christ to establish his kingdom here on earth, we read of heaven opening and behold a white horse, and he who sat on that horse is called Faithful and true. That is who God is. He is true in his very essence. And therefore this and this alone, it it establishes his role as the unique exclusive arbiter of truth. Truth is that which corresponds to reality as determined by this God. That is truth. And therefore, in light of that, truth has these qualities. Truth is absolute because God is absolute. Truth is not relative to circumstances because God is not relative to circumstances. God is not dependent upon circumstances. Truth is objective, not subjective. Truth is determined by God. It is not determined by me as a perceiver. Truth is what God has assigned to objects. He has not given me the right to determine what those objects are. Truth is constant. Truth does not evolve. It's always the same. Truth is universal. It's not private. Truth is theocentric. It revolves around God. It is not anthropocentric. Truth is revealed. It is not invented. And if there's anything that you want to say is truth, that does not conform to these things, then you can be certain it is not truth. Tim Challies says it this way, quote, truth is what God thinks. It is what God does. It is what God is. It is what God has revealed of himself in the Bible. Truth is found in its fullest form in God, for he is truth. He is the very source and origin of all truth, end quote. So what is truth? Truth is that which corresponds to reality as determined by God. Now, how do we live in light of this? What difference does it make in our lives Well, let me give you five implications of this reality, and they are all of vast significance. Number one, it means you must seek the truth. You must seek the truth. You must live not by lies. You must not be content with error. You must not lean on your own understanding, but you must seek the truth. Proverbs 23, verse 23 says this, buy truth and do not sell it. Get wisdom and instruction and understanding. 
What does this mean? This means you must refuse to lean on your intuitive interpretation of your circumstances and the world around you. So many of us are simply content to depend upon our own intuition. That's how we define reality, how it feels to me, my gut. But this definition of truth, as substantiated by Scripture, tells us truth is not, does not originate in me. Truth is not synonymous with my subjective, intuitive impression or perception of what is going on. It means truth is outside of me, and I must seek it. It means I must prioritize this pursuit of truth, this pursuit of an accurate understanding of reality as God has determined it, and I must prize that pursuit above the attainment of all worldly values, all earthly conveniences, and all temporal pleasures. And again, I want to address you as men. So many men have absolutely no stomach for truth, and what they seek in life is shown by their bank account and by their daily time, their, their schedule, their agenda, their calendar. Everything is all about these things of earthly value, these shadows. Now, God has given us good things to enjoy, but those things can only be enjoyed in proper perspective, in the proper order of priorities, in a proper order that places the pursuit of truth above all else. I must know the truth. And so you must do whatever it takes. Getting up early in the morning, sacrificing some of your hobbies, getting rid of some of that wasted time on the computer. If you love the truth, if you understand what the truth is, you will seek it. You will seek it. And it means you will also defy conformity to the culture's antipathy to true truth. We're so impacted by that cynicism. Uh, Who cares? What difference does it make? I'm happy as I am. And that culture continues to beat that drum. And eventually we just wear down and say, yeah, well, whatever. I'll just walk with the flow. No, if you believe in the definition of truth, that it is that which corresponds to reality as God has determined it means, you must seek it with all your heart. There's an interesting scenario in Pilgrim's Progress. Christian and faithful enter the town called Vanity, and this town called Vanity has a, 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 a fair that goes on every day of the year. It's called Vanity Fair, and it is a fair that sells all sorts of things, every kind of merchandise, every kind of pleasure, all kinds of entertainments, and even all kinds of religious icons. You name it, it's there. It's on sale at Vanity Fair, and Christian and faithful pass through this. They had to on their path to the celestial city. And as they did, the people of the city of vanity were perturbed. Christian and faithful were not buying anything. They had a different kind of clothing. And they had a weird, strange accent. And so they begin to ridicule Christian and faithful. And one of the scornful traders at one point yells out, What will you buy? They love the response of Christian and faithful. They say, we buy the truth. Christian and faithful are detained. 
put in prison, beaten, smeared with mud. Eventually, faithful is executed because he refuses to buy the goods of Vanity Fair. Christian escapes and continues on. How many of us would make it through Vanity Fair? How many of us would respond to the scorn and the ridicule and say, we buy truth, period? Number two, think the truth. Think the truth. Seek the truth. And God is there to give it. He does. So when you attain it piece by piece, what do you do? You think the truth. Philippians 4 verse 8, Paul puts this so memorably. He says this, finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on, logizomai, ponder, think upon, calculate these things. You are to think on truth. The most important, the most intense spiritual battle that you face is the battle over what you think, what entertains your thoughts, what fills those thoughts, what will you dwell upon. Paul recognized that and he gave this exhortation, do not think on lies. Do not let your thoughts entertain that which is contrary to reality as God determined it to be. Think true thoughts. Dwell upon true thoughts. And how you wage this war in your mind as a believer has immense consequences throughout the rest of your life. In fact, I could say this. Today, we, we hear much about the mental health crises that are so rampant in the world around us. And every time I hear that, I'm reminded that that mental health crisis is a consequence of thinking error that started who knows how long ago. Think the truth. Number three, practice the truth. Practice the truth. John 3, verse 20 to 21, Jesus says this, for everyone who does evil hates the light. Light is considered to be a synonym for truth, light. Everyone who does evil hates the light and does not conform to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be made manifest as having been wrought in God. Now note this, men. It is the epitome of hypocrisy to claim to know the truth but to fail to apply it to everyday life. Note this, truth is practical. It calls for obedience. And one of the sad things, and it exists in all of our lives to some extent, but one of the sad things that you see is when you have men who know so much of the gospel, so much of doctrine, and you end up having to church discipline them. That is so very sad. That is the epitome of hypocrisy. Pastor John writes this, divine truth and godliness are inextricably related. No matter how sincere our intentions might be, we cannot obey God's will if we do not know what it is. We cannot be godly if we do not know what God is like and what he expects of those who belong to him. 
And you go on to say this, and, and when we do know who God is, if that knowledge is accurate, it, it cannot help but change our lives because truth is practical. And if you want to take a litmus test, if you want to assess how well you know God, look at your life. How has it changed? That's the test. Number four, speak the truth. Speak the truth. Colossians chapter 3, verse 9 and 10 says this, Do not lie to one another, since you laid aside the old self with all its evil practices, and have put on the new self, who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. Or you could look at Ephesians 4, verse 25, Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you with his neighbor. For we are members of one another. And what this means, as we seek truth and think truth and practice truth, it means this, that we must mortify the practice of lying, of speaking falsehoods, of using words to deceive and mislead, even, you could say, of inappropriate exaggeration. You know, know, in, in, in fun jesting, there may be a place for that. I'm not denying that, but... You know what I mean when I say there's inappropriate exaggeration. You know, you uh, promise your wife that you're going to mow the lawn and she takes off to get groceries. And she comes back and the lawnmower is still sitting there. Oh, somebody gave me a call. I was talking to someone on the phone and that phone call lasted all of two minutes. But you exaggerate to try and get out of telling the truth to your wife as to why you broke your word. And that kind of exaggeration happens so much throughout every day, and we are so hardened to these things that we don't even realize it. But are we men of the truth? Do we speak the truth? It means we must cultivate truth or cultivate speech that communicates reality as God determines it. Understand, we have an incredible power in the tongue. A power that God has given us in his creation in a unique way as his image bears to use our words to communicate truth. And we use our words too glibly. We must understand the power that God has given us in words and use it truthfully. R.C. Sproul said this, if you are of the truth, if you have learned the truth, if you see the sanctity of truth, then speak the truth. We're not called to be deceivers or liars. God is a God of truth, and his people are called to have an enormously high standard of truth. Speak the truth. And let me say this, men. You know, the popular thing today is, you know, self-determined pronouns. I think there was even a day the other day, an international pronoun day. And like I said, if there's anywhere where the battle is on the front line right now, as it exhibits the secular mindset, it's in the area of these pronouns. Men, do not bow. Do not bow to assertions of error, of lies. Speak the truth. Now, it may be that you can get away and not use the pronouns at all, but do not feel that you must bow to Caesar and use Errant pronouns. God created humans as male and female, period. Speak the truth. Be a faithful and a Christian, and if you must, spend time in prison. A Puritan by the name of John Trapp said this, Truth must be spoken however it be taken. 
Finally, stand for truth. Stand for truth. And listen, this is what our culture fears. Our culture fears people who are certain. Our culture fears people who believe. One writer said this, A.A. Hodge, the son of Charles Hodge, said this, It is easier to find a score of men wise enough to discover the truth than to find one intrepid enough in the face of opposition to stand up for it. You know, you can be good at searching for truth and, and, and thinking about truth and even practicing truth, but, but what about in the face of opposition? Will you stand for truth? We need to embrace our role as dissenters We must embrace this role courageously in our secular culture. And men, that's where things are headed. And we must realize our mantle is the mantle of dissenters. We do not bow to lies. We stand for the truth as God has determined it. And it's that which leads Paul to say something like this to the Corinthians. Be on the alert. 1 Corinthians 6.13. Be on the alert. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. And let the chips fall where they may. After all, it was this kind of growing commitment to truth, to stand for the truth, that led Martin Luther to nail his 95 theses on the castle church door in Wittenberg. We're just days away from Reformation Day, right? And Martin Luther said this, Peace if possible, but the truth at any rate. That should be our motto. Or it should be what he said at the Council of of the Diet of Worms. And you know this statement gives us chills, doesn't it, as we think of Luther standing in front of the entire power of the Roman Catholic Church. And after being called upon to renounce all his works and all his efforts to exposit the truth, Martin Luther comes before the council and he says this, Unless I am convinced by scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of popes and councils because they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand. I can do no other so Help me, God. Amen. We must embrace our role as dissenters and speak the truth, stand for the truth. David Wells, who wrote a book along these lines called No Place for Truth, he said this, Evangelicals now stand among those who are on easiest terms with the world. For they have lost their capacity for dissent. The recovery of dissent is what is most needed. And the path to its recovery is the reformation of the church. It's that commitment which leads men to write songs like what we sang this evening. Even that wonderful song by by Martin Luther, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And as we close, I want you to meditate upon the final two stanzas of that hymn and notice the emphasis on truth. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, 
For God has willed his truth to triumph, triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. That word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them, abideth. The spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sideth. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we come before you with contrite hearts over how fast and loose we play with the truth. Even in our more nobler moments, our understanding, our assertions, our statements still do not reflect reality as you have determined it to be. We are thankful for your son, Jesus Christ, who paid the penalty for our sin. Jesus Christ, the very embodiment of grace and truth, who came to die for us, to give us life, to give us truth, to give us the ability to think thoughts after you. And now it is our great mission in life to do that increasingly, more faithfully. And we ask for your enablement to do that, that our minds would have an attraction to the truth unlike ever before. We would hunger for it and seek it, and that you would bless us, give us the good teachers we need, give us those precious moments in your word, give us your spirit to teach and instruct And then make that truth have its way in our lives to continue the process of sanctification, of of transformation into the likeness of your Son who is the embodiment of truth. And as that happens, we pray for boldness, that the words of truth would be on our tongues, and that even amidst the the, the strongest opposition, we would stand for truth and take great joy in it. Lord, we ask this not that we would be made much of, but that you would receive your due honor and glory as the God of all truth. We ask this in your son's precious name. Amen.